Hey, hey everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome to My Dog Ate My Email, a podcast all about email from the DMA. I am your host, Lily Boev, email geek, chair of the email council, and helping clients to be successful since 2008. I have the pleasure of introducing Catherine Loftus, Head of Marketing at Trusted House Sitters, to the pod today. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. You are more than welcome. So one of the things I've been asking our guests recently is to tell the listeners about how they got to where they are today. So a little bit around the the journey to your to your current situation. So can you tell us a little bit about how, how you got to being the head of marketing? Sure. So I guess you could describe me as a classically trained marketer. Um, so I did my um, degree at Bournemouth University in marketing, spent a year working in industry as part of that, where I worked for Bosch, the German engineering company, nice. um, which is where I kind of earned my marketing stripes. And then over the last few years, I've worked in various different industries from financial services to the world of environmental um, and then into trusted house sitters and email marketing has always played an important role in each of those um, those jobs but it, it really became my passion I guess you could say when I started at trusted house sitters there wasn't much by way of email strategy happening and I had the opportunity to really grow that and then that's when I discovered that it was a channel that I love as well um, and then in terms of uh, getting to the point of being head of marketing after um, managing the CRM strategy and, and seeing the business grow over the last few years, I was uh, yeah delighted to be able to take on the role of head of marketing, but still still an email lover at heart. Fantastic. <laughs> well, t- to date at the, I mean, you, you kindly said that you've been listening to the podcast, yes, which is fantastic. Uh, so today we've um, we've really been um, only focusing on uh, best practice, looking at the industry as a whole. And this is the first time we actually have a brand side marketer coming to talk to us about how email works within their particular space. Um, now, for, for the listeners, just so you know, Catherine is actually part of the email council. So she has definitely been involved in some of our debates and, and knows knows how it goes. Mm-hmm. But what I thought would be quite interesting is to kind of hear from her perspective what it's like to work within the email space, but from the brand side rather mm-hmm. than from an ESP or from one of the other industries. So can you tell us a little bit about what is trusted house sitters for those that may not be aware, even though it's pretty obvious <laughs> in the name? <laughs> sure. So trusted house sitters is a platform that connects that connects people with homes and pets that need looking after while they travel with people who love spending time with pets and love to travel. So our platform brings those two parties together. We're quite unique in terms of how the business model works. So both sides buy an annual membership. And then when we connect those two parties, no money changes hands between them. So the sitters go and house sit in 130 countries, looking after homes and pets around the world. And in return, that pet owner gets the love and care of a pet sitter who isn't motivated by money, who wants to be there because they just want to spend time with that pet in that home. So that's yeah, a that's pretty cool. That's yeah. a really cool model. It's quite. It seems quite unusual. Is it? Is it something that you've seen in uh, in other organisations, or is it quite unique to? It's quite unique. So we describe ourselves as part of the sharing economy, which is this kind of movement that's come out over the last few years where people are sharing um, but we're 
probably one of the purest examples that you can find because often brands like Uber and Airbnb are described as the sharing economy, but they still have that financial exchange. With us not having that, it's purely about sharing. And in terms of the world of house and pet sitting on a global scale, we are the only ones doing what we're doing, which has its advantages and of course its disadvantages too. So you can, so as someone who is the the house sitter, I pay an annual membership of whatever it is mm-hmm. and then I can effectively spend the whole year house surfing. Yeah. If, you know, if you can time it right, you, you know, you can kind of, you can do that. Is that effectively what you're saying that someone could do if they wanted to? Yeah, so we have members who have sold everything, um, retired maybe and are kind of embarking on this adventure of moving from place to place from house it to house it but then we've also got people who maybe are still working or they're a family so they're more limited around when they're able to travel and even just a a weekend house it away is enough for some people the annual membership is only 89 pounds you've basically made your money back in terms of what you would have paid for a hotel in a night um so even wow if you, even if <laughs> but you, hang on hang on hang on <laughs> so I can pay you 89 pounds and then spend my entire year effectively traveling and all I need to pay for is my flights yeah that's that's literally what it is a lot of people think it's too good to be true but... it does seem like it's too good to be <laughs> yeah. true and then if there's pets involved I mean I am sold <laughs> yeah it's such a great way to travel so um everyone who works for trusted house sitters we a lot of us are pet owners I've got two cats but we all go house sitting as well so I've been house sitting in Basel in Switzerland, looking after a couple of cats. I've been to Hamburg. I did one in London. I did one actually not far from where I live in Brighton because one of the great things about house sitting is you don't have to go that far to get that real unique experience. You can kind of see the world through different eyes by just going down the road and spending time in a different neighborhood, in a different home and with a dog that you don't have where you live. That's pretty cool. Do, do you have like verification on on the individuals obviously if you're opening yourself up to someone coming to your home how do you do the kind of verification to to check that there's nothing awry going on with the people and so that trust and safety element is the most important thing about what we do and there's there's a number of ways that we tackle it the first is yes having those verifications so the first thing that we ask sitters to do they verify their contact details we ask them to get a reference from someone like a landlord, an employer, someone who can kind of vouch for their trustworthiness. Um, and then they can also do a um, address check so that they have kind of proven that they are who they say they are, essentially. And that's an important part of our platform, but we actually find that it's the review system where trust is really built. So when a sitter has completed a house sit for a pet owner, the owner will leave a review for that sitter's profile that explains you know, the, how well they looked after the pets and how nice and clean the home was when they got home and leave their star rating. And, and that's where potential owners looking for a sitter really get the kind of the richness of, of that experience. And that trust is built kind of through those um, through those reviews, essentially. Oh, fantastic. It sounds like a sounds like a really interesting model. And I bet our listeners are going to be like <laughs> on, on the site right now looking uh, looking it up. Yeah. So you've been you've been working with us on the email council for what, about two years, I think it's been. Yeah, around more that. or less. Yeah. Um, so so email at the time when you first joined was one of the main kind of roles that you have. Can mm. you tell us a little bit about how email fits within 
within trusted house sitters. So where what position does email play for, for trusted house sitters? Yeah, so email plays quite a unique role at trusted house sitters because it's one of our major ways in which we acquire new members, but it's also something that plays a role across the entire member life cycle. So it's not just about getting someone over the line to buying a membership, it's about explaining to them exactly how the service works getting them to activate, making sure they complete their profile, right through to alerting them when they've received a new message or been confirmed on a SIT or have just returned from a SIT, through to the end of that annual membership and it's time to renew. So email is really just such an important part um, across that entire life cycle. And the response that we get to our emails has kind of enabled us to grow it as a channel. So as I mentioned earlier, we have house sitters who are literally they've sold everything and they're traveling the world. So when their alerts come through for their next house sit, they're sitting there waiting for that to arrive so they can jump on it and be the first to apply for that sit. Mm. Um, So, you know, we're seeing open rates on those alert emails of, you know, 70, 80%. And if they're ever delayed, the phones are ringing to say, where's where's my alert email? Because they're so important to that member, which is such a fortunate position, I suppose, as an email marketer to be working with a brand where email is such an integral part of not just the marketing, but the, the product and the service itself. Because it's quite, it seems like it's quite a one-to-one kind of relationship that you have with, with some of those individuals. Mm. Yes, you probably have the, the emails that go out to everybody, but then you have very much that one-to-one relationship with with the individuals very much so there's there's members that we all know on a first name basis who come into the office or we um we have a list of members who look at new features before they go out and give us their feedback and um yeah we we know them as individuals as well as customers because i mean we're, we're building this thing for them so i guess that kind of comes back to that sharing economy you know that's so, that must be so important to get that kind of feedback from those yeah, those tr- literally those trusted house sitters because they're going to be your biggest advocates. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned um, earlier, being the only one doing what you're doing, yes, it's a blessing, but it also means that we set the standard and there's no one that we can kind of refer to to see like, oh, how would they fix that problem? Or we, what could we do differently? We're leading the market. So we can't do that without customer insight. What does it feel like being the market leaders in that space? Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, So we don't have any direct competitors on a a global basis, but we do have a myriad of competitors in the pet care market, for example. So you've got, um, as well as the independent pet care brands, you've got really big players in the States like Rover and WAG who offer, um, yes, house sitting, but also dog walking, dog boarding and They've got a huge amount of funding and um, really established sort of brands. So while we're leading the market, we're also we're also challenging that market, mm. which is kind of comes with its own difficulties, but is also quite fun. That is quite exciting being that kind of challenger, the one that's sort of disrupting the the market really yeah. Yeah. with something that's it's, from what you've said is quite unique and, and and quite different. And it's not just about money making, although I'm sure that's a Important part for you, for you and your business to get yeah. to keep going, I guess. Yeah, yeah, sure. What kind of um, what kind of challenges do you do you encounter? Uh, kind of in, in the context of, of email when uh, within within your business. Hmm. So, 
In the early days, it was all about making sure we had access to the right data um, in order to make the email strategy a success. Mm -hmm. Um, So as every email marketer knows, personalization and segmentation rather than the kind of batch and blast is is where you want to be. Um, so as a relatively small team, so when I joined three and a half years ago, I think I was employee number 15, um, small marketing team, small engineering team, but with a real desire to grow fast and be scrappy, but also do as much as we possibly could in-house. Um, so I guess playing that... Um, that balance between uh, what the engineering team is able to dedicate their resource to when you're trying to grow a product, but you're also looking for resource to be sending through the right data or being able to be a bit more dynamic in your emails. So I think the biggest learning for me has been when to see what you can get done yourself and when you need to um, collaborate with other teams in order to create the best possible kind of output. And what did what have you done to work with those teams? Like, how have you engaged those internal teams to to help you? And also, how have you potentially helped them? Mm. So, I would say the biggest um, way of building those relationships is communication. And um, so, the thing that I always encourage my team to remember is that as marketers, we should use our marketing skills to build those relationships and and promote our team and what we're doing internally as well as the brand itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) one of the um, big success stories we've had recently is so we were looking um, to secure some engineering and product resource to, this is actually not an email thing, but um, to improve our content capability on the website. So the the blog and um, how that kind of uh, was presented on on the site and to get that resource what we did is put together a very short presentation that um, gave the data of the kind of size of the opportunity if we were to do this work and that just went down so well with the engineering team because they felt that they were inspired and they could see the benefit to the business that doing this piece of work would have and rather than them feeling like a kind of factory that's churning out work they're an active participant and able to contribute and able to understand um, how important this work is and and that just meant the process everyone was happy marketing was happy because the work got done engineering was happy because they can see that they've done something of great value um, and and the work got done so all the marketers out there remember to use your marketing skills in everyday life not just when you're uh, doing your work could you be a little more specific in terms of how you went about presenting that to to the development team because I'm sure I'm sure there are people listening who have to work with engineers mm-hmm. and developers and people who are more technical and maybe have challenges in terms of that that communication because it is you know to slightly different mindset so what did you do specifically to 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 get that buy-in from from them sure so we are fortunate enough to have some um, fantastic product managers at our at Trusted House Cities who are very much that kind of conduit between all the other teams and, and helping get that work um, through to engineering. But it's, it's an important role to ensure that the product manager has all the information that they need as well. So really it's about that collaboration um, and, just, and just being really, really specific about what it is that you want to be done and why. And I think the main thing is ensuring that you have thought through every um, 
ramification or um, every point that you need to cover off so that they don't get halfway through um, this work and think, well, what, what about this use case or what, what about what if this happens? So you've, you've shown that you've thought it through really, really thoroughly so that they have all the tools that they need to just go on and get the work done. Yeah, it is It is something that I personally, I've worked in tech for my entire career, so mm. it's something that has always been a friction point is, you know, you've got this great idea, maybe you don't think it through quite well enough, you hand it to the product managers and to the engineers, and then it just never really goes anywhere because they don't, that last little bit that you just didn't think of or you didn't think was important is actually the one that's really important that will kind of get it done exactly and get it closed and actually that that value piece I think is really important for for people so even if it isn't a piece of technology even if it is simply some additional work that needs to happen internally with a CRM development or something like that Mm. knowing what the longer term impact is going to be if you can attach a revenue to it that is I mean that can speak a lot to uh to engineers who often don't I think we forget that they don't often deal with revenue that much. No. So knowing the impact of that little bit that they're doing could actually have this huge ramification, I think, is really, is absolutely really important. Yeah, especially when you're working to maybe quite aggressive targets that are communicated business-wide. I think for marketing, it's often quite easy to see where you fit in that puzzle because it's like, okay, we want to make X amount of money or we want to... Um, drive X amount of new users to the website okay so I'll, I'll do some SEO or I'll, I'll do this email whereas when you're not directly contributing or able to um, make changes necessarily for in a team that's more kind of embedded within the business knowing that there is value attached to what you're doing is so motivating I think absolutely yeah I'd like to just take a step back. Um, you mentioned in terms of one of the challenges uh, in the early days was around acquisition. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether you can speak a little bit more around what you did to acquire new house sitters and, and the, the kind of process. Because I think that area in particular for new companies, I mean, um, Suze was on the podcast uh, a few months back and she was talking a lot about lead gen and, and how you can use email as a lead generation tool. But I think there are still in some areas and some brands where that is still a challenge. Can you talk a little bit about what you did in those early days to to kind of build that that acquisition model? Yeah. So the the lead generation um, podcast was one that I listened to with great interest because it's something that we have spent a lot of time thinking about as well. And what I particularly liked about what Sue said is that it's she used the example of doing lead gen with dangling the carrot of winning a car when actually your, um, what your product is offering is something completely different and the people have signed up because they want a car, not because they actually want to hear from this brand. Meaningful lead gen is so much more important than having a million subscribers in your database. And for a product like Trusted House Sitters, particularly for attracting pet owners to the service, because what we're doing is so different to traditional pet care, when someone lands on the website for the first time, chances are they're not going to be convinced straight away they need to be reassured they need to hear from other people who have used the service they need to know that it's going to work for them so that's when we um we kind of switched to a lead generation model probably two two and a half years ago um, where instead of trying to convert people in that first session 
we take their email address and we educate them and we reassure them and we do that social proof through the email programs and then we we see that um they they convert over time rather than coming first saying oh don't I'm not quite sure about this and, and bouncing and not coming back and um, so we it's spent, too good to be true <laughs> exactly so we we spent a lot of time yes optimizing the content of those email programs but also thinking outside of the ESP and within the product how are we collecting leads who are warm who want to receive emails from us and is that in the right point of the journey as well as how compelling is the copy within that form and your opt-in statement are you building trust um, etc so really it's that whole piece it's not just about the emails that you're sending it, it comes before that it's how have you gathered those leads with this process you know you, you touched upon the the acquisition how have you been able to optimize your your entire process, maybe not just even about email, but as a, as a whole, what do you do to make sure that, you know, what you were doing two years ago has evolved over time? Testing is the key word for sure. Um, so one Our of the- favourite cop out as, uh, yeah, as email marketers, <laughs> like what's the right way to do it? I don't know. Test it. Test it. <laughs> Test it. It's so true though. And the great thing about email is that as an email marketer, you're empowered to run tests almost constantly because the ESPs just make it so easy for you to do and um, to the point where we try and never send an email that hasn't been tested in some way. So either mm. that program has been tested and optimised or you're at least A being the subject line or you're using insights from previous tests to inform the style, the send time, the subject line, the segmentation, whatever it might be within that email. So that's um, the the job of the email marketer within the ESP in terms of testing and learning is relatively easy because you, as long as you've got the time and the kind of the creativity, you, the, the sky's the limit in terms of what you can test. I think the more challenging side of optimization is testing, again, outside of the ESP. So testing I used opt-in copy as an example. That's something that we are still A-being. We've got an A-B test running on our opt-in statement right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, the, on the website. On the website. Yeah. So it's all about, um, again, working with the product and the engineering team to get the resource and the buy-in for them to dedicate their time to build that test because we're still at a point where, as a marketer, I can't jump into the website and edit some copy or set up an A-B test. It's hard-coded, mm-hmm. and it, it needs to be that way for quality assurance and all the rest of it. Get that, but also how do we move quickly and how do we um, make sure that the tests that we're running are being measured in the right way so that we can kind of draw meaningful conclusions in a, in a timely way. Do, do you plan in advance, or is it a bit, like you mentioned, you are kind of quite scrappy at the start. Mm. Is it still quite scrappy, or do you have a a plan or a roadmap of, of sorts when you do your testing? Yes. So we try and find the balance between scrappiness and quality. Um, so the, the middle ground that we've found is working um, for our um, growth and testing. We call it a, a squad. Um, so I'm part of a squad that works in weekly sprints, um, which is me as a marketer, a couple of engineers, a couple of QAs, a product manager. Um, and a designer and we work together on a weekly basis to build out the tests that we want to run 
anyone in the business can submit an idea for a test. So maybe it's someone in membership services who's a a member has got in touch and said, oh, I really wish you had this feature on the website or I just don't understand X, Y, Z. And then that idea for a test can be submitted. We get together once a week to look through that, organise the backlog. But the roadmap is more now, next, later, rather than this week we're doing that, this week we're doing that, this week we're doing that, because the ideas are constantly evolving and you're learning from the tests that you're running and that informs what has worked and what you should do more of and what also hasn't worked that you need to kind of move on from. Have there been any tests that you run where you've you've been convinced that it's going to be something and it just totally wasn't? It was just like a real surprise that either didn't work or that it was completely like different? So many, so many. And I, <laughs> All right, pick, 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 pick your favourite. Which, <laughs> which one did, did, were you most surprised about? I, I think the, the thing that we find most regularly, and probably more so when you're running A-B tests in email, is most of the time it, it makes no difference. I don't know if you find the same as well, yeah. but a 0.01% change in subject line is usually, um, in open rate, is the, sometimes the best that you can hope for. And I think as marketers, we're so close to what we're doing and we know the emails so well that we can spot the differences between the two. But actually, for a customer, you've got a thousand other things going on. You've got a hundred other emails in your inbox. You've got things that you're thinking about, things you need to do. Your brand is not the centre of their world like it is for you. Yeah. So, so it's the same when we test copy on the homepage or imagery and you think you know this is it this is going to change everything and it and it doesn't it's completely flat we we ran a um a test on our checkout quite recently and it's been running for about eight weeks now because it just hasn't reached statistical significance but we thought oh you know this this new checkout is going to change everything but it turns out that the changes weren't sort of bold enough to make any difference and it's, <laughs> and it's just flat and, and how disappointing it is disappointing <laughs> but it, it I think that also tells you that being bolder with your testing taking some risks is probably what you need to do because you're you, you may not um, succeed, the test may fail, but at least you found out quickly, move on to the next thing. It's so true. I've spoken to so many people and they're like, in fact, there, were, there was a client that sent me uh, about six subject lines and said, which one should we use or should we test? And the subject, the only difference between these subject lines was the placement of the punctuation. <laughs> wow. So it was like one had a comma, one didn't, one had a full stop, one had an exclamation mark and... I was just, I didn't know how to break it to the client and say, it doesn't make any difference. You've just wasted more time thinking about the positioning of this punctuation <laughs> than actually just send the damn email and yeah. get it over and done with and just do it. Yeah. And it is it's so true, the statistical significance, especially if you don't have those larger lists, if you can't see that, try it. Like, try it, send it, don't give it too much thought, you know, what what has been has there been anything that has had quite a significant difference that has an impact that has made a difference either to maybe your process or to revenue or, or engagement mm. i would say going back to moving to this lead generation model as i said before before we were optimizing for purchase straight away and all of our kind of roi metrics were wrapped up around cpa um and and conversion but now we, we work on a kind of blended CPL, so cost per lead and CPA, cost per acquisition model in, in channels like paid search to some extent, but more so paid social. 
Um, so because you're kind of interrupting someone in their social feed, it's unlikely that they're going to buy something that they just heard about for the first time that didn't that they didn't ask to hear about. Um, so we, we optimise paid social 100% for lead capture now. And it, it was... What, what, rather than lead... Well, cl- cl- what do you call it? Closing the lead or yeah, what, purchase. Yeah, purchase. Yeah, it's, huh. it's all about driving that email address and then those leads drop into the CRM machine and it, and it does its thing. Um, and that, that does make it difficult, particularly for a brand like Trusted House Sitters that isn't working with huge budgets to be able to kind of prove the ROI on that um, investment in a channel like paid social when it isn't directly driving revenue in a short-term basis was was quite a commitment for us. But over the over the months that we've been doing it, we've we've been able to see the benefit of those leads and that spend and kind of you know, grit your teeth and, and keep doing it because it it's working. So you said um, you do paid paid social. Mm-hmm. What, what other kind of channels do you do you use? And as your role as you know, as much as as much as email is the centre of my universe, <laughs> um, you know, and I would love it to be the centre of everyone else's universe, but it isn't. And obviously, mm. as a head of marketing, email is not the only area that you that you look at. How does how does email fit within these other channels? You know, what are they? And, and can you tell me a bit more about about that? Sure. So. Brand Trusted House Sitters was built on three things, I would say. Uh, The first one is PR. So as I'm sure you can imagine, we have an incredibly PRable concept, pets and travel. Yeah, you can't really get much more more PRable. So in the early days, um, our founders, Andy and Rachel, were able to get uh, lots of coverage and we continued to um, get those inbound requests from from media on an almost daily basis which we're very very lucky uh, the second is seo so optimizing your on page optimizing your content getting those backlinks was again a kind of founding pillar of the brand and then the third again probably won't be a surprise is referral so word of mouth i imagine that last one must be quite a big thing it's for you but... huge yeah. huge particularly for the we we've got members that are kind of evangelical about trusted house sitters like this thing has literally changed my life it, be that a house sitter who's traveling the world or a pet owner who's saying I can finally go away I can travel I've got six horses I've never been able to do that before this has literally changed my life and that kind of sounds quite um dramatic but we hear things like that all the time so having... it's, a, it's a big deal for pet owners. Like you can't just leave. I mean, okay, maybe a cat mm. you can leave for a little bit longer, but you can't leave a dog or a, I mean a horse. Like yeah, you can't. You can't, and and the expense of that kind of pet care is kind of astron- astronomical. So yeah, those are the three big channels that, that the brand was built on, and they continue to be really important for us. Paid search is really big for us as well, but it's obviously wrapped up in um, kind of existing demand. And so they, those are very high intent um, visitors to the website who do tend to convert a bit more quickly. And in terms of the role that email plays, it, it supports every single one of those channels because they are our inbound traffic channels. They're getting people onto the website, but email is the channel which has the highest conversion rate by some margin because it's, it's taking those leads and it's taking the interest that's been driven by those introductory channels and it's converting those members through reassurance, social proof, inspiration, 
the occasional promotion. And do, do you have like a nurture journey built out? So once someone has given you their email address, what, could you tell me a little bit about that journey that they go through using email? Mm, so those um, acquisition programs was the first thing that I built out in my time as managing CRM at Trusted House Sitters. So the first thing was to ensure that we were communicating correctly with the two very distinct, we call them the sides of the network. So the communication for house sitters is completely different to the communication for pet owners that we're looking to convert. So the first thing that happens when you kind of land in our database is that you're segmented into those kind of broad categories. So our programme for pet owners lasts for, they both last for about a month. So we've actually got quite high frequency, particularly for sitters. And we found that actually you can send more than you might think. Um, it, sometimes it feels like a lot, but through testing, the engagement rates with more frequent sends kind of held up. Um, so for pet owners, that program lasting 30 days, you don't get an email every day, but um, it starts with um, an introduction to the brand. And something that we've tested really effectively for that program with pet owners is not just having big flashy graphics, promotions. We have a number of emails within that program that are actually plain text, written, no imagery, no CTA, controversially. Oh my God. Yeah, and it's framed as being from a member of the membership services team, so from a real person who is getting to t- getting in touch to say, great to have you on board would love to tell you a bit more about Trusted House Sitters. I'm on the phone right now if you want to give me a call or we're on live chat, whatever it might be. Um, and, and those emails, despite sort of breaking all the rules of best practice, perform really well for us because it's all about building that personal connection with that member. Something that I always refer back to as an email marketer is I think it's quite important to put take off your email marketer hat and put on your consumer hat. And remember that when you're looking at your emails in your inbox as a consumer, you're not thinking about the fact that that email has probably gone to 500,000 other people. You're thinking about that email and how you are responding to it. So putting that lens on the way that you treat email marketing is is really important, I think. Um, So yes, the the pet owner um, program is all about building reassurance, building trust, building that one-on-one connection. We have found that someone's 5x more likely to purchase if we can speak to them on the phone so encouraging them to pick up the phone have a chat with one of our agents the house sitter program on the other hand is much much more about wow can you believe that you can have this wonderful experience here are the latest homes and pets that are available to house sit it's all about the imagery it's all about the compelling copy Um, We deploy a a lot more uh, price promotions for house sitters because they're often sort of trying to decide whether to take the plunge or not. And often just a small kind of contribution towards the membership fee really gets them kind of over the line and encourages them to kind of take the plunge. So we we, um, communicate very differently with those two sides in terms of how we um, nurture those leads through the programmes. After that, 30 days again the communications remain quite different for the house sitter side it's all about those regular alerts with the latest amazing sits and for the owner side it's much more about um, making sure that they're aware of the trust and safety um, features that we have we recently launched an insurance product so it was all about making sure the owners were aware that those kind of fundamentals of the platform are in place and and letting them know that 
you know, it can be trusted and encouraging them to kind of give it a go. That's pretty cool. I think mm. I really love that that concept of, you know, one of those emails looks like it's come from an individual. And mm. though you say it's kind of bugs the best practice, actually, that, that's best practice for you. You've, you've obviously done so much testing that has got you to this point that says, actually, this is a really important part of it. It's still part of the journey. It's still part of that nurture process, mm. just because it doesn't look fancy or creative doesn't mean that it isn't effective and actually I think that's something that our listeners who do have journeys in place like that maybe could take could learn from and actually implement something that is gonna give them that same value that you found from that kind of plain more plain text email yeah I mean that's something that's worked for us and for other brands there's probably other ways of of tailoring that communication but yeah, we definitely encourage all the email marketers out there to, to be bold in your testing and and try something different rather than the difference of a comma or not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, give it a go. What's the worst that will happen? It it doesn't perform as well, move on, try something else. Yeah. I think I think that risk factor for some organizations is a bit like, yeah, but what if it does does go wrong? Yeah, so what? That's why you that's, that's the whole point test. of test, yeah, yeah. is, is to, to see that it fails, doesn't work. You, you leave it yeah fail fast, fail fast. Is, is, is I think a really important thing to to know and I when I was um working a lot more closely with like directly with um with customers I remember having a conversation with someone and she was so worried about what their not even her boss but the like the CEO of the business would say if they found out that they were testing something that she knew that they wouldn't like and I was like why do they need to know I said, if you, the whole point of a test is, is you're supposed to take a smaller sample size, yeah. or not so small that you can't do statistical significance, but they don't need to know that you're testing these things. But if it doesn't work, don't tell them. If it works, then you can say that you've increased something by X and that's what that's a success as far as I'm concerned. Yes, being driven by data in your decision-making is so, so crucial. I think especially when you're working in a startup and I imagine in, in every business if, when you care about what you do there's often quite a lot of emotion involved and, and maybe some personal opinions around well I, I think I should do that or in my personal life I respond best to this type of email but the, the number one way to find out is to, to test it to, to not use personal opinions and, and let yourself be guided by the data yeah I totally agree I, in fact we because um though we are not in the marketing team we actually do send a lot of emails to our, our customers mm. and quite often we get into this oh should we use this image or this image oh let's just test it this I'm not even going to argue about it just do a test and see which one works better up until now it's made zero difference yeah. I genuinely made zero difference on the on the on the test that we run but yeah, you know it's funny, you, isn't it? you just try it anyway and you go for, <laughs> hope for the best and you know if it doesn't work it's not the end of the world yeah um so so are there any other kind of channels that you haven't mentioned um kind of just taking a bit of a step back um in that kind of multi-channel approach are there any others that that you that you use quite heavily that you haven't touched upon those are the main ones we've been experimenting this year in out of home so some above the line um, oh, okay brand campaigns which again was a, a big leap for us as the brand kind of the biggest investment that we've made in something that isn't going to drive kind of direct ROI and as a 
as a marketing team that's largely been digital focused, that was such a learning curve for us. So we ran an out-of-home campaign in London because that's where we could see that, um, A, we had the most amount of um, owners on our platform who were um, having a great experience and finding sitters and um, getting lots of applications and also where we could see that sitters were searching for house sits. So it's clearly this is a city hub that we need to be sort of tackling. And what did you do? What kind of stuff were you doing? So we used um, what we called a hyper-local strategy because we were working with quite a limited budget. We decided to pick one area within London and try and dominate it. So we went with Putney and Chiswick. So we basically bought all the media that we could. So um, phone kiosks, which I discovered still exist today, just so that they can put ads on them. Like they still have a phone. Do they even have a phone in yeah. them? <laughs> um, bus stop, billboard, uh, that sort of thing. And yeah, like I say, that was a big, big learning curve for us because we're used to sort of launching an email campaign and within seconds you're in GA looking at the real-time numbers and you can see uh, traffic coming in. Out of home is a different beast altogether. Um, and I think we learned that maybe digital is more where we're at right now, but it was it was good to, to get that experience and, and learn how that kind of side of marketing can work. So it's an interesting how it's changed. I imagine when you went through university, a lot of it was all above the line, out of home Absolutely. marketing, and now it's all digital and it's like you know yeah it was good learning curve but maybe we just will stick with the digital because that's what works for for us yeah I think the industry has changed quite a lot so the um the kind of classical training of marketing so I finished my degree I think it was in 2013 graduated into a marketing industry that was completely different to what I just spent the last four years learning about it was very very um quite b2b very traditional. I, I left uni, had to teach myself PPC in order to be able to get a job. Um, so I think things have caught up now, but I think the industry over the last five, ten years has changed so, so much to be much more about digital, clearly. Do you know what? I don't know whether it has changed. I, I did um, I did a careers talk at uh, London University with it was it was all marketers, both undergrads and postgrads. Mm-hmm. And when I started talking about marketing tech, because that was one of the parts of my talk, hence you know I work in marketing tech. Yeah, it it genuinely looked like I'd blown their minds. They they didn't even they they didn't even have the concept that this even existed. You know, this mm-hmm. is a group of you know kids like from the ages of eighteen to sort of twenty three that didn't that weren't aware that marketing tech existed, Mm. that, yeah, they kind of had an awareness of social, but not really the impact of what it can do for marketing and and revenue. And it was, it was a bit of an eye opener for me to know that people are still not being taught what is actually happening in real life. Mm, That's fascinating. At universities. I did speak to some of their lecturers about how we might change that. And about four weeks later, I actually ended up doing a lecture on marketing analytics and, and focusing on data and, and Google Analytics and sort of how how it all kind of starts to fit together. But I think that's that is a gap that I think we I definitely see. I mean, I don't work in a marketing team, but I work mm. with a lot of marketers and it's a huge gap that I see that kind of data piece, that understanding of the digital side in new 
kind of up and coming practitioners it just doesn't seem to be there yeah it is a gap and it's so so important as a marketer but on the flip side I do think that having those marketing fundamentals they haven't changed they're just being applied in a different way so I'm quite surprised at how often I still think about the four p's so product price place promotion which was kind of day one of university and that was being applied to the more kind of traditional brands like IBM and and those sort of giants but it's still relevant for a startup so I think it's all about finding the the combination between the the data the digital the new stuff and the fundamentals do you do you have uh, like actually one thing we didn't really talk about is mm. is you, the size of your team and, and and kind of how that how it's structured could you tell me a little bit about what the team looks like sure so we are a marketing team of 10 I think um so the team was small when I first started and, and we've grown um as a marketing team quite rapidly so at the moment we have um sort of mini teams within the marketing function so we've got um, three or four people who are focused on content. So they are um, thinking about content that is for social, that is for SEO, uh, that is for um, member acquisition as well as member education. Uh, we've got uh, our brand team, so our head of brand, um, PR, uh, performance marketing, so PPC, paid social and affiliates. Those are kind of the big ones and then organic social and we think of community as a, a marketing channel as well. So because of that, the importance of that word of mouth. Um, so we have a community manager, Angela, who also manages our organic social and we think of social not really as a as a it is an acquisition channel but it's not banging the sales drum every with every post it's all about showing the connections that members make and connecting with them directly on the social channel and it's it's much more about um showing who we are rather than trying to sort of ram it down people's throats and actually having dialogue with, exactly. with the people yeah, yeah it's, i mean it's there's definitely a a theme to what you've been talking about for, throughout the this conversation in that you know, you you're not just there to be making money. You're not trying to force. You know, it's a it's a single membership for the whole year. It doesn't matter how you use it. It's it's the same. Mm. It's a very different approach. And so that dialogue, that relationship that you have with the sitters and from, um, forgive me. What was it? What what do you? So you've got the sitters on mm. one side, and you have the owners. 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 Okay, yeah. so the the owners on one side, the sitters on the other. You know, you have to have a relationship with both because mm. you have to be trusted. You know, that isn't, it's in the name. It has to be trusted on both sides. So I can see why it's so important that you maintain that dialogue and that sales piece, you, you know, it doesn't seem to really fit, does it, with that kind of environment? So it's such a a special part of your life. It's your home and your pet. What, what could be more I important? mean yeah exactly so yeah. I think that that is you know I think that's really good to hear that those values that you have as a as a company reflects in in the marketing that you do in the relationship that you have with with your with your owners and your and your sitters yeah and it's not always easy you know we we are a startup and we we need to be growing and, and almost a constant battle is being true to those values and and not chasing a revenue number. And we talk a lot about growth, but I always want it to be about meaningful growth, not growth for growth's sake, not sending people a membership who's never going to use it, because yeah. ultimately, what's the point? 
you know, grow because you've made something meaningful with people who actually want to use it. So it's a really nice, really nice sentiment. Yeah. You, you mentioned a little bit earlier around um, around ROI and that you have sort of smaller budgets. Mm. Could you talk a little bit around how you leverage those small budgets? You know, you're a team of 10. Mm-hmm. You know, what, one of the things that often comes up in conversation is around team size, the challenge when it comes to budget, you know, trying to make ROI, but you've just said that you, you don't want growth for growth's sake. So how yeah. do you grow your budget without disillusioning people and just getting them on board for the sake of getting them on board mm, so I mean promotions is an example of something that we we try not to do too much because that is really where you start getting into um, selling something that maybe someone isn't ready to buy or wouldn't have bought otherwise so in terms of how we measure ROI on our performance marketing channels so paid search for example we try and keep it at least one-to-one ROI. And, and when you're doing that, you can basically spend as much as you can because it's a, it's a one-to-one ROI. There's obviously so much you can do to get that volume. And that's really where the bulk of our marketing spend is going at the moment. And the great thing about email is that it's so cost-efficient. It's almost impossible to put a number on how cost-efficient it is, um, which is great for a brand like us. So the spend is going on making sure we're getting the right people onto the website. So through uh, paid media, bit of PR and, and investing in SEO and that sort of thing. And then the email engine runs itself and, and you know, scaling up and down in terms of the amount that you're sending doesn't really change the amount that you're spending on it. So it's it's such a, an important channel for a brand that, that doesn't have huge budgets or even for one that does. Mm. It's It's... It doesn't need to cost a fortune to be effective. You just have to be a bit scrappy yeah. and, do, and do it in sometimes in house and, and just be thinking outside the box a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's one in the in the last podcast that we did. We uh, one of the questions that came up was, who leads that innovation when it comes to email creative? Mm. You know, is it the smaller organisations that are a bit that thinking outside the box because they have to because they don't have the the big budget to spend on some massive advertising agency that can come up with the ideas for them mm. that actually sometimes come up with the best innovations or is it those big organizations that have those budgets that can invest in some really new and exciting sort of work you know we, we talked quite a bit about live content so the the, yeah. the real-time content and and the way in which some organizations are leveraging that I think can be really interesting would you say that trusted house sitters are, are that kind of first type where you've had to be innovative mm. because you're leading the charge you are smaller you're more agile you have you have to because you you don't have those big budgets yes I mean to some extent I th- I do think it depends on the brand and um, so someone who does live content really well in email um, for example is channel four and um, so they can do live content insofar as teasing when something's starting, changing that message on open if it's already started. So with a football game, for example, they'll have a countdown to the match starting, open the email while the game is on and you'll see the score, open it when it's finished and you see the final score. And for a brand like Channel 4 that is on a huge stage in a highly competitive techie uh, visual world, I can see why you would need to get out the big guns and work with a big agency and be doing something that's all singing and dancing. But that isn't right for every brand. And for a brand like Trusted House Sitters, what's more important is bringing out that authenticity and 
Sometimes that takes the form of a, of a plain text email, but it also means that we don't have some fun with our emails. So we pull uh, live inventory into our emails. So the latest house sits, for example, we use things like countdown timers and um, scratch to reveal and weather and all of that stuff that you can do. But that's, I would say, the cherry on top. And, and what's much more important is your strategy and uh, the content of that email rather than kind of what it what it looks like. That's it. I mean, I think that it, like the examples you just gave, that's still live content. That's still important to you because I imagine it's a lot easier to send out those those emails with the live content for what's available, what isn't available than if you were having to run those manually. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So one of the things you've told me about in, in the past is some of the interesting ways that you drive outcomes and actions through the CRM program that you have. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've done to to achieve those particular outcomes? Mm, So I guess along the lines of having a bit of fun with your email. So one of the ways that we do that is to drive that word of mouth referral. And so we've started playing a lot with the kind of concept of gamification which can be a great way to increase engagement with your email. So layering in um, kind of behavioural stuff like urgency um, can can work really, really well, kind of deployed in the right way. Um, so we have run um, referral campaigns with our members where we encourage them to send out invitations to um, everyone that they know who would be interested in trusted house sitters. And every time one of them joins, they have the chance to win something ranging from a free month of membership through to a lifetime membership, for example. And you you see in the data that you get these big peaks that you can map exactly to when the email went out. And once you get into things like ending soon and last chance messaging, it it just goes bananas, which is so rewarding to kind of see as an email marketer. And the great thing about that sort of campaign, especially for us when we're giving away months of membership, doesn't cost us anything. It's, it's email, again, coming back to how cost-effective a channel that can be. It's all upside in terms of, of what you get back in, in terms of revenue, new members. And the good thing about using referral for that is that like attracts like. So members are inviting their friends and family to the platform. And those friends and family are, are likely to be like that member. So you're still maintaining encouraging the right sort of customer to your platform again not doing revenue for revenue's sake and um, so yeah I would I would encourage everyone to have a bit of fun with them um, that uh, gamification and kind of this idea of behavioral economics it's so um, interesting as well as a marketer to be layering in kind of psychology and um, playing around with what principles can work well with your base. Are there any uh, any specifics that you would recommend people explore around behavioural economics? Mm, so the, the big one that we use is social proof. So that doesn't mean um, social media and it doesn't even need to be um, showing someone something from a person that they know. But people like to follow the herd. That's our kind of natural instinct as um, as humans. So an example of how you might use social proof would be including Trustpilot reviews in your email or showing one that we use is showing pet owners in Brighton, for example, um, other examples of pet owners in Brighton who have find a, found a sitter so they can see, oh, right, people in my area are using this and it works. 
An example of how we use social proof in the referral gamification stuff is um, we say most people invite six friends. So if you haven't invited six friends yet, you think, oh, I better, I better do six <laughs> rather than one or two. And it, it really works. And that kind of being part of the pack and following the herd is, is, is just our natural instinct. So you can, as a marketer, you can have some fun with that. It's a, it's a real good point. Have you, have you ever seen the video of um, how do you start a movement? I think it's a, actually a TED talk. Oh, no, I haven't. So, so I forgive me, I don't know the name of the guy who was running the lecture, but he's like, this is how you start a movement. And it's a video of a group of people on the side of a hill at... Uh, some sort of music concert you can't really hear the music but all you see is one lone guy dancing on his own and everyone else is sat down on picnic blankets and this goes on for maybe about 30 to 40 seconds and it becomes a bit uncomfortable Mm -hmm. until the second person stands up and joins him and then within about a minute and a half every single person in that like video (laughs) clip has started dancing and it's like it's not the first person it's the second person that gets going that kicks off the movement gets everyone else going because up until that point that guy is a bit of a loser (laughs) (laughs) it's that second person's like do you know what I'm gonna go and join that person do you know what genuinely worth a watch it's on TED Talks um just how to start a movement or something like that it's 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 really really good Mm. Have you um, have you seen any um, other examples of gamification, not necessarily within trusted house sitters, that you've really liked the approach that that you might try? Hmm. I mean, I think the one that's kind of old as time is getting your um, stamp every time you buy a coffee. Um, so I think everyone's probably got ten of those kicking around in their wallet. But there's something about getting that stamp and reaching for that free cup of coffee. Um, that's so rewarding and that's it's such a simple way of doing it I know McDonald's do it really really well with collecting I, I don't really know what is it, it is the monopoly thing the isn't monopoly it? thing oh, yeah. is just huge so there's definitely something in it and I, I do think there's something in our psyche that just makes us want to collect things or tick a box or whatever it is just to just to show that it's done even if those points don't really mean anything it's we the urge is to have something completed. Um, yeah, like get a month free of uh, of house sitting if you do ten house sits. Yeah, something or, like yeah, that. Yeah, just something really simple like that. Yeah, I, I say really simple like that. <laughs> you might need to get your engineering team involved to get yeah. that put in place. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell think, them what the revenue benefits are going to be, yeah, and then you're going to that presentation. <laughs> yeah, I think loads of brands are, do- are doing it really, really well, and probably without us even noticing. Mm, I, I actually think that the kind of hospitality industry does a really good job of doing that in-person loyalty that it doesn't tend to translate as well digitally as it does in person. So that little Mm. piece of paper, that little business card size paper and a stamp and the difference it makes is is huge. Yeah. I've actually um there's a, a the Flatiron Square just near our office. Mm. They've started to do a little digital one so you can tap like a contactless card I think and you can get a stamp like a digital stamp that, mm. and I imagine that ties in with some sort of system. I haven't investigated it but it sounds like quite an interesting one but yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's a bit of a gap that that exists at the moment is digitizing that that feel of of kind of getting your tenth cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, from an individual. <laughs> I definitely have more of those than I would care to admit. Same. Half filled ones. Yeah. <laughs> 
So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just more of a personal Mm -hmm. approach. So you are one of the few brand side marketers that sit within the email council. And the majority of the email council is made up of uh, people from ESPs, um, consultants. There's a wide range of, of individuals. Most of them work for various tech companies that sit in email. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of debates about what happens in the industry. And we're, we come from a very privileged perspective in that we kind of, we know what's best practice. We preach what's best practice, but actually we can sometimes lose the challenges that exist from a brand side marketing perspective, because it's not just about email. It's not just about the best practice that we're putting out. And so I was interested to get your thoughts on, you know, when we have those debates, when we have those discussions, mm. what do you make of it? And and do you sit there agreeing with what we say? Do you sit there going, yeah, but that's nice, but the realities are very different. What's What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where um as a as a customer and as a marketer and a person in your personal life who is buying goods and services and has a million other things going on it's it's probably quite similar so to to someone working at an ESP or to someone working at an agency whatever it might be that's that's your world but to a brand marketer, the brand is their world and everything that comes with that. Yes, email is so important, but there's also a myriad of other things that are important. So it it's not always possible to do everything. And sometimes you have to do things that you know aren't best practice or you know you would rather spend another six weeks tinkering with, but you need to just get it out the door. Um, so... I mean, technology is probably quite a good example, um, particularly for a smaller brand um, that doesn't have much budget. If you you can't have every tech add-on possible to your to your email or to your marketing, whatever it might be, you, you just can't. You have to pick the ones that you think are going to be most effective and kind of commit to them. So even though as a marketer, we would all love to have all singing, all dancing, real time, suite of analytics and you name it you you just can't um so i think as as a brand marketer it's it's interesting to hear and and i think you can you can appreciate the the benefits of a piece of technology but not always be able to to go for it at that time because it's it's often you as the brand marketer are not the decision maker it it needs to go through other teams it needs to get um management sign off and there's 10 other things that are going through that same process at, at the same time because mm. it's not it's just not always possible so it's not that you necessarily disagree it's that you just sometimes it's yeah it's not going to happen yeah. as much as you would like it to yeah or not going to happen right now maybe yeah, yeah. You mentioned right at the very beginning when you were talking about your your background that you've worked in quite a few different industries mm-hmm. has it always been with an email it's always been within marketing. My previous roles before Trusted House Sitters were kind of marketing executive roles where you're um, kind of across multiple marketing channels and email has always been part of that. But I've actually never been an email marketer through and through. So it's just been like little pockets. So how was, yeah. um, I was interested and it kind of ties in with what you were just saying is, you know, it's not just from the house Trusted House Sitters perspective because you've worked in so many different 
kind of areas. Mm. Ha, ha, do you see any differences between each of those types of companies, each of those different sectors in mm. the way in which they approach their marketing? Taking from the email perspective, of course. Very much so. So my previous role to Trusted House Sitters was for a brand called Friends Provident International, which is a financial services um, company that sells savings and investment products in the Middle East. Can be more different to pets and travel. Um, so that's a highly regulated market um, where every claim or every statement must be backed up or has an asterisk that explains exactly what what you're saying, um, as well as being um, largely B2B. So my customers were financial advisors rather than consumers. So the the strategy was was very, very different. It was all about, it was more about actually supporting the sales team through CRM. So the CRM would go to the financial advisor and it would say, you know, this new literature is now available, get in touch with your sales rep. And then they would go in and visit them and do a follow-up and show them the literature, for example. Very, very different. Much, much more from a process point of view, much more sign-off. So every email, it would go through compliance. A lawyer would look at it. The head of marketing would look at it. Um, a, a, A technical person might look at it. Whereas at Trusted House it is, on my first week, the first email that I sent, I was tethered to someone's phone in a laptop, in a van, driving to a trade show. And I was like, what is happening? After spending (laughs) two years in financial services where you've worked on something for about six months before it actually goes out, it blew my mind a bit. (laughs) But now I can imagine going back to having to do so many rounds of sign off just to get something out the door. Yeah. So it's, it's... Email marketing, while the principles stay the same, the way in which you go about making it happen is completely different, I imagine, for every brand. And I guess that that difference, as much as you would like to be able to just get that email out the door, you, you, in, for financial services firm, you, you can't. You can't. You have to. You, you have to can't. follow the process. Yeah. Um, as as it goes. Well, it's 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 good to hear that you don't completely disagree with us, even no. though, even if there is a healthy debate. It's always <laughs> always nice to to have a bit of a. Um, a bit of a debate and because you do work as a head of marketing and you do work across lots of different parts of marketing where do you see you know how do you see email fitting in from a relevancy perspective what what's this, do, is it how important is it in comparison with everything else so it's it's very very important because I think the unique thing about email is that it is both strategic and tactical so you've got your foundations in place you've got your automations that are happening you've got your life cycle that's mapped out and that's happening but often if a lever needs to be pulled email can be the first place to go um the first place to look in terms of if you need to drive up revenue or you need to um get more people onto the site or whatever it might be email has the power to do that so in terms of its relevancy as a channel, I really don't see it going anywhere. Everyone pretty much has an email address. You can't sign up for social media without an email address. And it's the thing that I love about email is that it's both a mass communication and a one-to-one communication. And no other channel can say that, I don't think. Um, 
So it, it, it just has so many different ways of using it. And as long as you understand it and you invest your time in understanding how best to use it, the, the um, opportunities are kind of endless with it, I think. Oh, go email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone listening uh, wanted to become a house sitter or is interested in um, being an owner... Having someone Having sit their dog. Yep. <laughs> um, what, what, what do they need to do? So come along to Trusted House Sitters. So we um, have a website, we have an app, so whatever your preferred method of uh, interneting is. Um, if you're interested in being a house sitter, we say it's for people who love pets first and foremost. It's, it's not a cheap way to travel. It is, but your motivation needs to be because you want to spend time with pets in great places. If you love pets, then come and have a chat with us. If you um, are a pet owner who is looking to find a house sitter, um, on the website you'll find lots of information about how it works in terms of um, the sign-up. And So what, what you do is you create a listing where you add um, lots of photos of your home and pets and you describe exactly what you're looking for because a house sitter will literally step into your shoes. Um, if you feed the dog at four o'clock in the morning, the dog will be fed at four o'clock in the morning. So it's all about making sure you find your right match in a house sitter. Um, and then that goes out into our emails, it goes out onto the website, and um, you will receive applications from house sitters who would like to come and sit for you. And then you can either have a chat with them on video chat or meet them in person, even if they're in your area and kind of make your selection you know, the power is very much in your hands to decide who you want to come and house sit for you. Um, yeah, so so come along to the website if you would like to hear more. We have a 24-7 membership services team who would love to have a chat with you on the phone. Fantastic. Thank you so much for, for talking to me today and for telling our listeners about about your service. I bet you'll get a bit of an influx of, <laughs> of uh, new interest after this, uh, after this goes live. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, drop an email to email at dma.org.uk. You are welcome to, to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, look up Lily Boev on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm not really using any other social channels, so I'm not going to go through that. Um, Catherine, do you have a, a Twitter handle that people can find you on? I do. So um, if you want to have a chat with me about email marketing, trusted house sitters or anything in between, you can find me at cat. Co Olivia, so it's Catherine Cat C, my middle name Olivia, my other middle name. I was late to Twitter, so my username makes no sense. Or if you would rather, you can find me on LinkedIn, Catherine Loftus, and um, please drop me a message. I'd love to connect with you. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, I will put a, a link to to your Twitter handle uh, on the on the show notes. Great. If you enjoyed this and you want to listen to more, you are welcome to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to give us a five star rating, we'll very much appreciate it because then we get more people listening. I've been your host, Lily Bove, and this has been my dog ate my email. Thanks. Bye. bye.